Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for coming. It's, it's a pleasure to be uh, here in Zurich uh, giving this talk. Um, a small brief introduction to what I'm going to be talking about. Initially, I'm just going to talk about why I think Bitcoin is unique as a form of money, and then what I think Bitcoin is good for, and then what would a Bitcoin standard look like? What would be the effects of having Bitcoin become more and more 
an international global unit of um, settlement of accounts across the world. In other words, the, I'm going to just give you the brief highlight of some of the main ideas in my book, and I'm going to try and keep the presentation as brief as possible so that we could then discuss anything that you would like to uh, spend more time discussing in more detail after um, in the Q&A session. So, why is Bitcoin unique? In my opinion, what makes, you know, in order to understand what makes Bitcoin unique, we need to look at what makes a good money. A good money, if you look at the history of the things that get chosen as money, is usually the hardest thing to produce. Whatever is hard for people to make more of gets chosen as money. And the reason for that is because people think of it that way and understand it, but also, even if they didn't understand it, the reality is that people who store their, mo their wealth in a form of money that maintains its value over time will end up with more wealth than people who store it in a form of money that is easy to produce because the supply increases and that brings down the value. So effectively, what we end up seeing throughout history is that anything can be used as a medium of exchange as long as it's held as a store of value. But if people use something as money, that brings the price up. If the price rises, people will produce more and more and more of it and then the price comes crashing down. So only the things that are hard to make succeed as money in the long term. So if you look throughout history, we see cattle, which are not easy to produce, seashells whenever they were rare, um, glass beads, metals, and then precious metals, and then they were made into coins. And even amongst government monies, if we compare across government monies, we see that the harder and most popular, the more popular monies, the ones that are used the most around the world, are usually the ones that are the hardest to make. So. If we see across the world, we look at all examples of how this process happens. Uh, there are a couple of stories that I like to mention in my book, which um, I'm not going to get into in much detail here, but you can read more about them in the book. Uh, the story of the rice stones, which are pretty popular amongst Bitcoiners, the way that these things stopped being money is that once a, an American sailor came to that island and saw that they used those stones as money, the reason they were used as, as money, I should say, is that limestone does not exist on that island, so it's very hard to produce. But when this guy could get modern boats and modern um, quarrying equipment, he would go to other islands, get limestone, and bring it onto that island. And once the supply was inflated, these stones lost their monetary value. Anytime something that is easy to produce comes up against a form of money that is harder to produce, we see the story repeats itself, that the value of the easy-to-produce money just collapses and the people who own it lose the wealth that they have. So um, glass beads were used as money in West Africa, um, and when Europeans went there, because glass was hard to make in Africa, but it was very common in Europe, when Europeans went there, they'd take a lot of glass beads from Europe, plant them, um, sell them in Africa, and as a result, they were able to expropriate a lot of the wealth of Africans through making their easy money, because Africans could not make gold, which was Europeans' easy money. So this story continues to repeat itself, and as a result of it, over time, what ended up becoming the money all over the world, as uh, pretty much everywhere by the end of the 19th century, was gold, for the reason that it is the metal that has the reliably lowest increase in its supply annually. The supply growth rate of, Bitcoin, of gold every year is around 1.5%. It's hard to find gold and it's very expensive to produce it, and so the supply does not increase a lot. And so if people store their value or their wealth in, go in gold, it doesn't lose its value quickly because it's hard for others to make more of it. Okay? 
If we look at national currencies, we see the average annual growth of uh, the annual supply growth of national currencies between 1960 and 2015 was about 32 percent per year. Now, obviously, this includes a lot of examples of places that had hyperinflation, but you see the trend that the countries that had very high growth rate、uh, of their supply witnessed fast devaluation of their currency. And many times they witnessed hyperinflation, whereas the currencies that had slow economic, slow growth in their supply, ended up becoming used as international reserve currencies, like the Swiss franc and the U.S. dollar, and all these things,、uh, and all these major reserve currencies. So even amongst governments, we see this relationship that hard money drives out weak money because it maintains its value better. So you travel all over the world; people use the dollar, the pound, the euro, the Swiss franc because they are hard currencies compared to the currencies of other countries, and they have lower supply growth rate. So for me, this is why Bitcoin is important because all of life. All of human history, you know, from seashells and、um, cattle and salt and all of these things, people are just trying to find something that other people can't make easily. Gold was the best solution we had, but it looks like we might have a new kid on the block with an even better, badder solution to the problem. If you want, it has the lowest. It's headed towards having the lowest supply growth rate of anything. That, is, that can be used as a liquid medium of exchange anywhere in the world. So right now, the annual supply growth rate of Bitcoin is at around four percent per year, a little less than four percent. But in a few years, it's going to drop below one and a half percent, and that's going to be lower than the annual supply growth rate of gold. And eventually, it tends towards a zero percent supply growth rate. In other words, eventually, the supply of Bitcoin is capped at twenty-one million, and that's just a fixed amount. And this, for me, is a unique thing because. Bitcoin is different money from everything that we've ever had before, and I mean this not just in terms of you know it's programmable money or that it is、um, you know all of these other technical issues, but I mean it purely from a monetary perspective. Bitcoin is a unique animal; it's a whole new species, because with every other form of money, when people demand it more, when the demand for that form of money rises as a store of value. It incentivizes others to make more of it, right? Whatever it is, whether it's U.S. dollars, whether it's gold, whether it's silver, whether it's copper, whether it's oil, anything that you would like to use as money, more of it will be produced as a response to people using it as a store of value. The only exception to this is Bitcoin. Bitcoin, as many of you know, does not care. To put it nicely. Bitcoin supply is fixed, and it doesn't matter how many people try to mine Bitcoin or try to produce more Bitcoin or want to use Bitcoin. There's only going to be a set amount of new Bitcoins produced, and that's because of the mechanism called difficulty adjustment. And in my opinion, difficulty adjustment is really the key and most important technology about Bitcoin because all the other constituent parts of the technology, the proof of work and you know cryptographic messaging, and a lot of the constituent parts were devised in many previous systems. But I think the genius of Satoshi Nakamoto was that he made that system work. If you look at the previous、um, designs, what they needed was、um, difficulty adjustment, because that was the only way to guarantee that the supply would not be inflated and then bring the value of the currency down. And so, as a result of this, we have a completely new form of money, wherein the more people store in it, instead of it leading to an increase in the supply. Instead of people mining more Bitcoin and producing more numbers of Bitcoin, what we end up with is that the difficulty of mining Bitcoins increases, 
which leads to more processing power being needed for mining more Bitcoin, which means that we need, which makes the network more secure. Okay, so this is really different from all the other forms of money. That's why it's, it's, it's a new way of doing money. With everything else, if the interest for it rises, people make more of it, and that brings the price down because the supply increases. With Bitcoin, it just makes the network safer. We have this endless cycle that we've been running through over the last nine years, and people are just trying to come to terms with it, which is that as people start demanding it as a store of value, the price rises, it makes mining more profitable, more processing power goes towards it, makes the network more secure, which in turn makes people trust it and use it as a store of value for higher amounts, and that brings, it up, brings up the price even further. And effectively, this is how Bitcoin is advancing as a form of money. Now, this means also gives us an idea about how secure it is. This is Bitcoin's hash rate last time I checked. It's about 31 exahash per second, which is around 4 million times the world's top supercomputer, 4 trillion times your laptop, all to do what is roughly around 200 or 500,000 transactions a day or so today, which can be done easily on your laptop while you're browsing the web if you wanted to do them in a centralized way. But Bitcoin needs all of this hash power to do it in a trustless way without intermediation. So as a result, you know, it has no single point of failure. It doesn't rely on any single critical hardware or infrastructure, no single critical individual or organization. It basically can't be stopped. And every 10 minutes, a new block is going to be produced with whoever shows up effectively. What we have is effectively, in my opinion, the hardest money ever invented, the most advanced technology for money, and it is available worldwide for everybody with an internet connection. We've only seen the first nine years of this, and it's been growing insanely. But I think, you know, more likely in the next years, you know, who knows how fast it will grow, but I don't think it's really um, out of the ordinary to imagine that it will just continue to grow at least as much as it has grown uh, in the past. So, um, effectively, what this means is that we have a new form of sound money. If you look at the Austrian economists, and that's something that I'm very interested in, but I'm not going to bore you, bore you with economic theory too much right now. If you're interested in that, you can read about it more in the book. It's after 5 p.m., so economic theory doesn't really work. Um, but so let's just stick to practical things. What is Bitcoin good for? So in my opinion, you know, we hear a lot of buzz about what Bitcoin can do and what Bitcoin can transform. My Really, my, my, my definition of why Bitcoin is important is because of its use as a store of value, because it is the first strictly scarce liquid asset. It's the first asset that we have that is truly scarce in the sense of that no matter how much we want to produce more of it, we can't produce more than a specific limit. With every other asset, with every other um, resource or metal, or oil, or anything else, the limit on how much we make of all of these things is never the quantity that exists on Earth, because we've barely scratched the surface of the Earth from these things. The limit is how much time we dedicate to them, as opposed to all other things. So everything else is relatively scarce, in, terms, in, in the sense that we could always make more oil if we just give up on making more of other things. We could always make more gold or anything else. But Bitcoin is strictly scarce in that nobody can make more of it. And that makes it, in my opinion, an excellent store of value because there's only going to be 21 million of it forever. And so if you think about it, you know, uh, one of my favorite economists is a guy called Julian Simon, and he wrote a book called The Ultimate Resource. And he argues that the only resource that is really a resource is human time because human time can be, con can be converted into anything else. 
we, we can make more of anything with time, with human time, but time is really the fundamentally scarce thing. But I think now we find something else that is also truly scarce, and that is Bitcoin, because it is truly fixed in terms of its quantity. And so if you think about it in that way... The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Money is used to transfer value across time, but the sort of inefficiency in money is that when you store your value in it, other people can make more of it and thus bring the price down. Think about it as an inefficiency in the store of value function. That inefficiency has been fixed by this digital solution called Bitcoin, which prevents any inflation from happening. So it allows you to store value across time with the least friction or with the least loss possible because of um, inflation. The second reason I think this is important is individual sovereignty. It just means that this form of money is much harder to confiscate, it's easier to send around the world, and it allows people a low-risk, low-key option to opt out of wealth confiscation and inflation. In the short term, you can think of it in this way, but in the long term, I think, you know, now you, in the short term, we can see examples like in Venezuela today. Um, but in the long run, I think if you think about it, it curtails the ability of government to continue to finance itself through inflation. And it you know, if a war, in a world in which everybody uses Bitcoin as money, hypothetically speaking, governments can't just create Bitcoin, create money to pay their bills and then um, finance it through inflation. They would have to simply tax before they spend. And that makes political decisions face economic reality in a much more accurate way um, than financing through um, inflation, which is what has happened effectively since the move away from the gold standard to um, fiat money and government money in the 20th century. So Bitcoin basically um, is, is a major move away from placing monetary sovereignty in the hands of governments back into the hands of the individual as it was before the 20th century. And, um, and the reason for this is because, in my opinion, and this is the the, the place, for, this is the title of my book where it comes from, what is emerging from Bitcoin 
is a decentralized free market alternative to central banks and gold. We just have a new, you know, we have the central banking system which is still built on gold because central banks still use gold even though they use their own currencies with one another. But we have that analog digital global settlement system run with central bank monopolies. And now we have a free market digital alternative for sending value and settling value across the world. And the reason that I think this is, you know, I'm not saying this as a prediction, I think this is far more of a, um, it's an operational reality that you see around the world today, because if you look at how the Bitcoin network is operating today, it is to a very large extent beginning to look like the gold standard in the 19th century, in the sense that every single Bitcoin transaction on the blockchain, meaning every last final settlement of a Bitcoin from one address to the other, is now becoming a proxy or um, an envelope, if you want, or a first layer for several other transactions done on other layers. So exchanges today, they settle a lot of their transactions with one another by batching all of the transactions into um, one settlement pay, pay, um, payment per day. They settle the transactions between their own clients on the platform without having to rely on the Bitcoin blockchain for settlement. So we're seeing more and more settlement transactions taking place in Bitcoin, and Bitcoin becoming like global settlement uh, layer for international transfer. And this is why I think Bitcoin is really um, important in this regard, because this is a, um, you know, as, as we move forward on time, Bitcoin's on-chain transactions Maybe we'll increase them by doubling them, tripling them. You know, some new technologies are being introduced that can increase scale of on-chain transactions, maybe by a few multiples. But off-chain and second-layer transactions can, of course, increase in exponentially because if you don't have to settle the transaction on-chain, it makes it far easier. So what is being built right now in Bitcoin are second-layer solutions that are beginning to um, really economize on Bitcoin blockchain space in order to settle more and more value. And so the value of transactions being settled in Bitcoin is growing, and the, num the, the use of Bitcoin as a form of uh, money is growing around the world. And this effectively, as a big fan of Austrian economists, this is what Friedrich Hayek said in 1984, we are being able to finally to have money because we, as Hayek said, we can, uh, by some sly roundabout way, introduce something that they can't stop. And this is, I think, what Bitcoin is. It's a sly roundabout way, and most people have no idea. And thankfully, most central bankers still think of Bitcoin as a stupid game. And, you know, long may that continue, because it really is a very sly and roundabout way that it will require you years to be able to figure out what is going on. Um, but, you know, the reality is, <laughs> once they do, they're going to realize it's probably too late to stop it. So that's really going to be interesting to think about it. So, if that thing continues to grow, if this global settlement layer continues to grow, on the one hand, we have central banks settling with their analog old ways of shipping things abroad and, you know, um, delays and all of that stuff and everything going through the Federal Reserve and AML, KYC and all of that stuff. And on the other hand, you have this free market, purely digital option. If it continues to grow, more of the world is using this form of hard money as opposed to the easy monies of governments, which grow every year at about 5, 6, 10, 20, 30, sometimes even much more percent. What happens? In my opinion, a society that runs on Bitcoin would look a lot more like a, um, a society running on a gold standard in that it has hard money. What happens when you have hard money is that money appreciates in value over time, 
which incentivizes people to save for the future and accumulate capital for the future. On the other hand, when money loses its value over time, people have little incentive to hold on to their money and are incentivized to consume. You can also see this through the price of money, which is the interest rate. In easy money societies, interest rates are low, so it makes sense to borrow. On the other hand, if, um, you know, uh, so people end up borrowing more and more rather than saving. So I think this is, a very good, this is very good news, that it's going to mean money appreciates and people are going to spend money, are going to spend less money. And of course, this drives um, most economists of the Keynesian persuasion crazy because they tell you, oh no, if people stop spending, then we will all die, as you know, because then the economy collapses. But, you know, to this, I like to provide this image of a 10 megabyte hard disk from 1980, which was selling for the bargain price of 3,495 US dollars. And I would like to ask you why anybody in their right mind would buy that when they could just simply wait 30 years and then buy, the same, buy 10 megabytes on a little USB key for maybe a dollar or something. So, what would you do? Would you just wait 30 years or would you buy this if you were in 1980? If you had good use for it, you would buy it, right? So if you were Steve Jobs in 1980 and you needed an external hard drive, he probably bought it. But um, would you wait just because the value is likely to go down? No. The notion that prices dropping, that prices dropping will stop people from spending only really applies to frivolous spending. You're not going to starve today just because you can get more food tomorrow, right? At some level, you need to survive. In other words, as human beings, time preference is a very foundational concept in economics. Time preference is always positive. We always prefer the present over the future. However, the degree to which we prefer the present to the future is what varies, and the quality of money, I believe, has a very significant role to play on that, in that. So if the price of money is going to go up over time, people are likely to think of the long term, and so they will discount the future less. Whereas, so they will have their decisions function according to the long term rather than the short term. Um, people will still spend, of course, but they will spend on what they need, and instead of spending, where, what happens when you don't spend? That's what the Keynesians never found out about. People save if you don't spend. The opportunity cost of saving is that you forego uh, consumption, and the opportunity cost of consumption is saving. So harder money leads to more saving. More saving leads to more capital accumulation. This leads to higher productivity. This leads to better material living standards. This is effectively the process of civilization. The process of accumulating capital is how we moved away from being monkeys living in the jungle. This is, this is the difference between us and other animals. We started accumulating durable things because we could think far longer. Some animals, of course, can accumulate some uh, durable things, but you know, not many. Um, but we made it a systematic thing and we've continued to accumulate it. And humans have accumulated capital over thousands and thousands of years because of this idea of being able to think of the future. We don't just build a house for today, we build a house that lasts longer. And so, in my opinion, the lower time preference, the more people are going to prosper, and not just prosper, but also it affects all, element, all aspects of individual life, your morale, people's ideas of time, uh, family, society, culture, everything blossoms when people are able to accumulate more and more capital and grow. In other words, once people's material needs are secured, people are able to um, take care of other things. So if you look at all the periods of human flourishing, 
Um, I, I believe there's a fundamental uh, difference. If you look at the 19th century across Western Europe and the US, you know, um, people's quality of lives were improving very quickly. The, qual the quality of innovation that was happening in terms of science and technology was much uh, better than I think it is uh, right now. Um, all of the most important innovations that we have right now, or I mean many of the most of them, came from that period. If you think about you know, the la belle époque, they call it, of the 19th century. Another example you need to think of, of course, and part of the reason why I wanted to have a talk here is Switzerland, which continued with hard money for much longer than most of the world and doesn't seem to have done it too badly. Um, Switzerland is a society that maintained, you know, the rest of the world went off the gold standard practically in 1914. Switzerland was effectively until the 1970s on a gold standard and you know all of the things that the Keynesians scare you of in the gold don't mysteriously appear to happen in Switzerland. In fact we see that you know people are able to think far more in terms of the long term once they're able to accumulate capital and um, uh, and you know plan ahead. So this I think for me this is the first thing low time preference. Secondly limited government, I think is a very important thing to go back to the issue of individual sovereignty, what I said about the long-term effect of it is that if you think about it now, capital and wealth is no longer really physical. When capital was factories and physical gold, governments could always figure out where it was moving or where it was and spend a bunch of people with guns and lock it down and control it. But now things becoming digital, it's information, it's very hard to control with guns. It becomes much harder for government to control wealth creation and wealth is able to travel around the world and move around much more freely. In other words, governments will, people, governments will have to compete for, peop for people and most likely we're going to return to models of governance of reduced government. In other words, what I'd like to call the Swissification of the world. Less, less governments. The world's going to become more and more like Switzerland, hopefully. And that's, you know, um, and as people who live in Switzerland, I'm, you know, you may not agree with me intellectually, but you know, your feet uh, speak much louder than your, uh, your, what you do with your actions. You've lived here, you've moved here, and I think there must be something nice about this place, right? I, I believe so, and I think it has to do with the hard money history of this place. In fact, if you look at, and this is the third aspect of it, if you look at what hard money does, under the gold standard in Switzerland up until the 1970s, there was practically zero unemployment in this country. There were no recessions in this country up until the 1970s when, when, you know, when the US moved off of the uh, gold exchange window and so Switzerland effectively had to move off the gold standard. That's when unemployment started. In the 1990s when Switzerland sold a lot of its gold reserves, that's when unemployment went, back, went up and then we started getting all these um, recessions. So I think you know this is not something that people like to talk about a lot but really um, if you study Austrian business cycle theory and as I said I'm not going to get into it in detail but the solution for, the, for the solution for the business cycle is hard money. The cause of the business cycle is easy money. It's artificially manipulated interest rates. Why? We could have discussed it more over drinks but you know if you don't agree you have to explain this. Um, and I haven't found any other convincing explanations for this. In other words, if you think about it, since the end of the gold standard, global trade has functioned according to units of government, um, government money which fluctuate in value based on government's policies and all sorts of different factors. 
the world has a system of partial barter, and it's kind of crazy if you think about it. It's a huge step backwards from where we were in the 19th century. In 1900, you could trade with pretty much anywhere in the world using the same currency. Conversion between one country and the other was similar to converting between the meter and the inch. You know, the franc was this many grams of gold, and the British pound was that many grams of gold. So the exchange rate was a fixed variable that you didn't have to worry about. And money traded across the world very easily. Now we have barter. We're back to international barter. If you want to buy something from another country, you have to buy their currency first and then buy their things, which is a massive inefficiency that creates this enormous monster called the foreign exchange market, whose size is 25 times the size of world GDP. And because obviously it's not productive transactions, they don't go into GDP. But the amount of transactions that goes into just trying to solve this problem of coincidence of wants of barter on a global scale is an enormous market that we could simply get rid of if we had one functioning central, uh, one, one functioning neutral unit that depend, did not depend on a single government. Gold was the thing that people had used historically, but that didn't work out for political reasons because its clearance has to be centralized, which meant that governments eventually ended up with all of the gold and they controlled it and so it became government money eventually. But Bitcoin, in my opinion, is the technical solution to that that Hayek spoke about because Bitcoin, its settlement it's, is decentralized. And that's the key difference between it and gold. So whereas in gold, we tended towards a world with say 30, 40, 50 central banks clearing amongst one another, with Bitcoin, we can have thousands of effectively central banks around the world performing final clearance with one another. And then on second layers, they can handle all the other kinds of payments. This makes the ability for governments to shut down Bitcoin very hard and therefore allows us to have an international standard for moving money around the world that is independent of government, independent of monetary policy and able to settle payments across the world in less than one hour, which is faster than what you could do with physical gold. And that's really the key thing. And faster than what you can do through running through um, in, in intermediaries like the central bank in terms of final payments. So one key point I keep emphasizing in my book is that Bitcoin is not here to replace your credit card purchase of lunch and dinner because that's a transaction that doesn't need in you know, complete finality that Bitcoin offers. It's okay if there's a 2% risk of fraud on it or 1% risk of fraud on it. It's worth it. It's a risk sort of acceptable. The kind of security that Bitcoin offers needs, first of all, about an hour to clear, and secondly, its final settlement. And so you want to compare it not to your credit card transaction, but to the settlement transaction between your bank and the bank of the restaurant that you're buying it from. So effectively, if we think of Bitcoin in that way, we can understand Bitcoin's growth as a monetary standard as a base for a monetary system that is being built around it, a new financial system for settlement of transactions on second layers of transactions, uh, so settlement of transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain and individual transactions being processing on second layers. And the best thing about it, and the reason why I care about it and find that interesting, is because it has automated monetary policy. It takes the human beings out of monetary policy. And this is, in my opinion, you know, like taking the human beings out of the um, phone operators, um, but much, much, much better. All of these PhDs in central banks trying to think that monetary policy and interest rates are something that they get to plan. One day we're going to laugh at them like we laugh at central planners in the Soviet Union, thinking they can plan the potato market and so on. We have examples of how free markets and money work. Switzerland is the best example of that. 
and I hope you guys back me up on this because you know you're you're here. And I see no reason why um, a, a free market in money and in settlement can function over. Uh, can, see no reason why it cannot function over Bitcoin um, as it continues to grow. So this is uh, my book. It's available online, or it should be. And um, this is my website and my email. I welcome any uh, communication from any of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I don't know if this is working. Actually, you haven't mentioned this, but you also have a blog. Uh, the safe house, yes? It's interesting actually, and many of the things he mentioned today are also written in there, where you can calculate how many banks <laughs> yes, can be in the Bitcoin network. So we're open for questions, we're very well on time. Thank you very much for the very, very interesting talk. Um, so please, we have microphones across the room. So those of you who have a question, raise your hand and you're happy to ask. Thanks for the nice talk. So uh, all this is a description of once we get to that Swissified world. So how, if you were to make a prediction of the timeline and, and the mechanism that will guide the world to there, uh, and also when that would happen, would you be able to do that? No, I would not, and you can't make me. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you, if you read Hayek, he says, you know, in, in matters of human affairs, in matters of economic action done by individuals, there's no way of really predicting how individuals will act because, you know, the only way that you could know all the information needed to decide how an individual will act is if you are that individual having gone through everything they know. So in other words, the knowledge problem that Hayek talks about is really beyond people's ability to make specific predictions about how things would uh, unfold. I really wouldn't know, but I think it's, you know, some people would like to think of it that one day we're going to wake up and we're just going to have like hyperinflation, but the opposite, where everybody's running into Bitcoin and all national currencies collapse. And while I certainly would enjoy that possibility, <laughs> I, I'd definitely be, you know, watching with uh, a lot of interest at least. I don't think it might really happen. Um, I mean, I think it's just, what we're seeing is that this is just growing very gradually. I mean, for the Bitcoin infrastructure to be able to spread around the world, for people to be able to access it, for people to be able to learn how the cryptography works, how to keep your private keys safe, I mean, it's really not easy, you know. Bitcoiners are definitely guilty of overselling the user friendliness of Bitcoin, I think, in the sense of, you know, we're trying to market it as if it is the iPhone of money, and it really isn't. It's the Linux of money at best, you know? So, you know, you have to get to know how it works. You have to spend the time on it. And, you know, you need the financial infrastructure for people to, uh, spread, uh, to, to, to spread out the quantity of Bitcoin around the world for people to be able to buy it and hold it and to understand it. So it might take some time. But, you know, you look at the adoption of how technology happens. It's, it's really difficult. Like, I don't think you could have predicted how, when it would be that everybody would have email. Um, I'm sure some people made correct predictions, but I'm not willing to put my name on one. I think what is interesting is that, you know, this, this economy, this Bitcoin-based monetary system is already out there and it exists. It's an online monetary system. It's like the internet has its own central bank right now and anybody can join it from anywhere in the world. But the reason it has such an advantage over everything else is because it has such hard money and it's starting from such a small base that right now it's about, what, 0.1 or 0.2% of all the money in the world. So if it's going to go to 1% of all the money in the world, 1% of all the value held in money in the world, 
that's going to mean it's going to go up in about five-fold in value. So that just attracts more and more attention to it. So it's, it, Nakamoto's difficulty adjustment is itself the marketing strategy because it just keeps bringing the price up, drawing more attention of people to it. So I don't know. We'll see. So why Bitcoin and not another blockchain currency? Is it like this? So, first of all, yes, there's the, there's the, for me, a, a big part of it is that there's a winner-take-all idea of it in the sense that this is a protocol, really. This is not a product. And what you need is just a protocol for the transfer of value digitally. And that's what Bitcoin achieved. And in the same sense that, you know, once we built the infrastructure for the protocols for the web, there was not much innovation on that. People are just accepted, you know, this does the job. You can move data across wires with this thing. And then, okay, let's build data and move it around. And I think Bitcoin was the first one to do this. And so there's the first mover advantage of it, doing it and doing it securely for the longest period that is going to naturally, I think, mean that this would tend towards being a natural monopoly. But I don't think that's the main reason. I think the main reason is fundamentally that for something to function like this as a neutral settlement layer, wherein it is not dependent on any single individual controlling it or um, increasing the supply or um, manipulating it or censoring transactions, you need something that is truly neutral, that is not controlled by anybody. And this is where I think Bitcoin is different from all the other projects because in nine years, Bitcoin has simply... Um, I mean, it's changed, but it's only really changed cosmetically. It's really been hard for anybody to change anything fundamental about it. It hasn't hard fork in any meaningful way. And the only changes that happen to it are soft forks, which effectively mean it's changing how you're dealing with the network without changing the fundamental parameters of the network. Now, no other blockchain project has that. It's possible for any other blockchain to fork much more easily. And for me, the fact that it can fork easily to change the block size or to, say, roll back the chain or uh, do anything means that somebody can control it, which makes it not very neutral. And for me, that w the fact that somebody would control it would make it completely unsuitable for this role as a settlement layer. Because if we wanted money that was controlled by others, if we wanted money that could be centrally controlled, we already have democratically um, accountable or, you know, your mileage may vary <laughs> depending on country, but nominally democratically accountable central banks that, you know, probably do a better job with this um, than having um, programmers running it. I think the value of Bitcoin is that it's the only one that can claim to be a neutral standard that nobody controls. That's how it's different from all the others. And that's why it can play this role while I don't think the others can. Um, if you ever travel to any dollarized country where still cash in the dollar form is a popular payment, you might get the strange advice from relatives to take really crisp dollar bills with you. And mm -hmm. as soon as you get into a taxi, you'll find out why. Because if you present this, this nice crisp dollar bill to the taxi driver, you get a, this really stinky dollar bill with five holes in return. So this, the conclusion of this is people will will try to get rid of the bad dollar bills first. And the, and the al analogy here is that people will try to spend the bad money first, mm -hmm. the, the, the low quality money first. And uh, it, the anal the, the, what you're presenting here is a very strong and hard case for the Bitcoin. It is really sound money. And is the logical conclusion of that that people, as because it's such a great store of value, will not like, like to use it in, as a medium of exchange. And so 
Well, maybe also the question before is, is there anything that could fill the gap or do you still think these two roles are compatible with each other? Well, the thing is, if you're going to store value with it in the long term, you're still using it as a medium of exchange. It's just that you're delaying the exchange further and further, right? So those two, I think, are inseparable because in order for anybody to use something, to accept something as a medium of exchange, they have to be willing to store value into it. So I don't think you can really separate those roles. And um, one common misunderstanding I find in the, uh, in the Bitcoin uh, ecosystem is people talk about the medium of exchange as if it is the payment network. And I think those two things are different. So in terms of the payment network, we could have, think about everything that we use as financial solutions today. If central banks, hypothetically speaking, tomorrow central banks decide to dump all of their fiat money and gold and replace it all with Bitcoin, just hypothetically speaking, we could have all of the world's Bitcoin, all of the world's economic transactions taking place everywhere. They would be denominated in Bitcoin. You know, your credit card and your bank account and everything would be denominated in Bitcoin. So, um, the, the the point is that I think the the use of it as a store of value is what's going to really increase the value of it. And un as long as Bitcoin is still has room to grow, because it's still 0.1% of the money of the world it will just continue to be much wiser for people to hold on to it and spend their other monies. So for me, as long as people will accept my government money, I'm happy to spend it. But, you know, I realize this is a great discount deal that is not going to last forever because eventually I'm going to run out of people who want to accept those things. I think this is, it might not happen in my lifetime, maybe it'll be in my daughter's lifetime, but, you know, I, I just see it that over time, if you think about it, you know, 50 years from now, we're only going to have about 20% more Bitcoin than we have right now. How much percentage more dollars are we going to have or how much percentage more euros are we going to have? It's going to be a far larger quantity. So the value that is held in Bitcoin will rise and multiply, whereas the value held in other monies, I think, will drop. But I think we need to separate the issue of um, the monetary unit versus the payment networks. And that's why I think, you know, to, to go back to the original question, I don't think altcoins can solve that problem because fundamentally they all run into the same scaling limitations. And we're not going to have 10,000 currencies for settling amongst the world for 10,000 blockchains. We want one money because that's what always happens with money. But we're just going to build settlement layers on top of it, second and third layers on top of it. That's how I would see it. Uh, there's a hard cap of 21 million. Uh, different researchers say that 4 million of Bitcoin is already lost. Uh, so my question is, how do you think about this and will the whole world economy fit in the rest of the 60 uh, million bitcoins left? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a fundamental uh, disagreement in economics about whether you think the quantity of money matters or not. So for Keynesian economists, for the mainstream economists the, uh, in the universities that you've probably gone to, for them, you know, a growing economy needs more money because if we don't have more money, then... We have, we have more stuff, but we have the same amount of money, so the value of the money goes up. And then when the value of the money goes up, people stop spending, and then people stop spending, we get unemployment. That's one way of looking at it. <laughs> but there is a, you know, adult way of looking at it, which says, no, it doesn't matter. The, the quantity of money itself is irrelevant in itself. If the value of economic activity taking place increases, the value of the money rises with respect to that. And that is 
inherently the, f the reason for which people buy money, for the reason for which they, people hold money, because it's the one thing whose quantity increases the least as the quantity of everything else increases. That's why you store your wealth in um, money rather than apples or oranges or things whose production can increase much more. So, in my opinion, I don't think it is a problem. I think that the, if we lived in an economy, any economy can run on any money supply as long as the units are divisible. And as you know, you know, saying, okay, we only have 16 million um, bitcoins, but we have 16 million times 100 million uh, satoshis, which adds up to, what was it? Um, it's a quadrillion, I think, or something like that. I can't add in zeros now. But yeah, there's enough, basically. There's enough Satoshis. It's simply a matter of uh, the value divided into them. So I don't think that is an issue. Of course, there isn't enough space on the blockchain. There's no way that the blockchain will scale for having everybody's transaction because it would be completely insane that, you know, the, the way Bitcoin works is that you know what everybody in the network has before you accept any payment. And if you wanted to run that so that everybody is on track with every single other person in the world, it would simply not work. But as a settlement layer, I think, I, I think it could simply do that because you know, with, um, with a little risk in terms of the final settlement, um, people, will, people can still use um, intermediaries you know, with smaller margins of risks for smaller transactions, effectively. Um, hello? Okay. Um, do you think that the uh, pseudonymity and uh, the traceability of the transactions might be a problem for the adoption, or how do you see this for the future? Yeah, well, if you think about it in terms of the anonymity, um, as, as I, I don't really think that a permanent ledger, which is what a blockchain is, is really going to work very well as, an, as a place to hide. So generally, you know, people who think Bitcoin is good for crime, I, I, I think it's a terrible idea, and a lot of people have gotten caught because of it, because you know, it's a permanent record of transactions. I don't think it's very, uh, I mean, one way of thinking about it is if, if you want anonymity, starting with a blockchain is really the worst kind of engineering decision you could start with, because you're starting off from a place where you have a permanent listing distributed over many thousands of copies all over the world. But I think the scope for anonymity will come on second layers, because in a free market, People want to deal with banks that won't um, disclose all of their transactions. And I think, you know, in a free market, people would just deal with the banks that they want and banks will remain anonymous. And I think that would actually fit better with the way that I think of Bitcoin in that if Bitcoin is used, if, if on-chain transactions, the way that this will happen effectively is that as demand for Bitcoin increases, the, the, the number of, um, um, the value of the transactions, the transaction fees goes up, so the transaction fees stop being consumer individual transactions, then they become all settlement transactions. This can continue to go up until only the most important, most valuable settlement transactions in the world are done on the Bitcoin blockchain, and everything else is carried on on um, uh, second layers. In that, in, in that shape, actually, Bitcoin, the lack of anonymity of a blockchain might be an advantage. In other words, think about a world in which if we say there's only half a million transactions of Bitcoin a day, which is something that you know, we can exceed today, we would have around a thousand central banks able to offer final settlement across the world using Bitcoin, each one of them settling with each other one once a day. So you'd have about a thousand central banks around the world able to settle once a day with one another for their final payments. It might actually be good that we know each one of those banks, each 
wallet on the blockchain has an identity linked to a bank that is acting as a final um, settlement provider. And individuals can get their transactions done on second layers using all kinds of privacy technology that anonymizes them and doesn't show up on the blockchain. I think this is, a, this is likely to be how anonymity comes along rather than through blockchain solutions. But um, I mean, I, I, I'm not entirely confident of this. This is not something I, um, I, 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 I would claim expertise in. Yes. For the speech, my name is Dani. I have a more political or economical question. Uh, we see a lot of states suffering from uh, bans or um, sanctions, uh, just separating them from uh, trading or global trading and so on. Would you advise these states to use cryptocurrencies or bitcoins to kind of uh, use it as an exchange uh, to do uh, their economic, uh, economic requirements to cover this? Uh, to have international uh, uh, trades based on bitcoins rather than depending on the dollar? I think this is definitely an interesting use case. I think for central banks, as you know, particularly the central banks that have trouble with the SWIFT network, like places like Iran and North Korea and Russia, if they're trying to move money around the world, Bitcoin might be an interesting proposal, an interesting idea. Of course, you know, just like with individuals, if the central bank of a country goes and buys with 40% of its reserves, Bitcoin might not be a very good idea because who knows what happens to the Bitcoin price the next day. Um, Satoshi gets out of his uh, slumber and decides to sell or whatever. So, you know, I, I wouldn't advise a central bank to go all in on Bitcoin, but I think, you know, in the potential, as a central bank, if you're thinking about it, that any one central bank, any two central banks defecting towards using Bitcoin will lead to a massive increase in the value of Bitcoin. So it's a game that involves a, l a significant first mover advantage. You don't want to be the last central bank that tries to buy Bitcoin. So I think the smartest thing that a central bank could do at this point is probably mine Bitcoin on the down low, accumulate it. And then if at some point, you know, if Bitcoin continues to rise in value, they continue to have higher holdings, and then they find that they have a significant enough amount of Bitcoin that they could use it for settlement with another central bank, you know, it'll make itself useful. So I think, like with individuals, you know, the, the use of it can come along as you move along. It, it, it might not be the wisest thing to just go all in at the beginning because you don't really know um, w w what's going to happen. But yeah, I think effectively central banks in the future could just be based around Bitcoin. So either central banks need to move towards Bitcoin or the central banks that will be built around Bitcoin will just continue to... Um, have more and more growth than the others. That's one way of looking at it, we'll see. Yeah? Uh, one of the properties of money is that it's a limit of account. Mm -hmm. And so if Bitcoin were to be considered to be a monetary standard, you know, uh, it's worth wondering whether it would ever be used uh, for, you know, to price things in. Right now, the only things that are priced in Bitcoin are like transaction fees and block rewards. Yeah. Uh, do you think it makes sense for things to be priced in Bitcoin? And, and how do you think, if, if so, how do you think that would ever come about? I think uh, this is only going to really come about after Bitcoin grows significantly from where it is right now. It's just, if you think about it, currently Bitcoin is about 0.1% of the global money supply. So if one rich individual decides to go from dollars to Bitcoin and sell in, you know, just $100 million, one person wants to spend $100 million buying Bitcoin, that's going to significantly move the market. A lot of people can move the market significantly today because of different variations in demand and supply. Um, but I think with time, if, 
if Bitcoin continues to grow in value and becomes a more significant part of the ex foreign exchange market, the size of each individual transaction compared to the liquidity of the market becomes less significant. So the market will start settling, um, you know, the market will have more depth, more liquidity, will start settling on um, a, a narrower range of prices. Effectively, you know, but you know, that doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow, but I think the only way that you can end up with a world in which Bitcoin is relatively stable in value is when Bitcoin is the majority of the money in the world, when Bitcoin, is maintained, when Bitcoin holds the majority of the store of value demand, so that if a lot of people decide to dump some other currency and move towards Bitcoin, it still causes small changes. Now, in the hypothetical scenario in which Bitcoin is the only money that is used in the world, in that kind of world, yeah, we'd have stability because the value of Bitcoin, in my opinion, would increase every year by the value of economic growth, by amount of economic growth. So if Bitcoin supply is constant, 10% more economic output means prices of everything drop relatively by 10%, so the value of Bitcoin rises by 10%. That will fundamentally determine, be determined by time preference. The more people want to hold money, the faster it appreciates. The more people want to spend, the lower the, uh, um, the, the less it appreciates, I think. Okay. Okay. This one? Yes. I don't like the other microphone. So, <laughs> so um, I'm going to end the face-to-face -face talk now. Um, thank you. Your, thank you very much. <laughs>